Chapter Eight, Part Three of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Eight, Part Three. ESCAPE FROM THE ICE At last daylight came, and with the dawn the weather cleared and the wind fell to a gentle southwesterly breeze. A magnificent sunrise heralded in what we hoped would be our last day in the boats. Rose pink in the glowing light, the lofty peak of Clarence Island told of the coming glory of the sun. The sky grew blue above us, and the crests of the waves sparkled cheerfully. As soon as it was light enough, we chipped and scraped the ice of the bows and sterns. The rudders had been unshipped during the night, in order to avoid the painters catching them. We cast off our ice anchor and pulled the oars aboard. They had grown during the night to the thickness of telegraph poles, while rising and falling in the freezing seas, and had to be chipped clear before they could be brought in board. We were dreadfully thirsty now. We found that we could get momentary relief by chewing pieces of raw seal meat and swallowing the blood. But thirst came back with redoubled force owing to the saltiness of the flesh. I gave orders, therefore, that meat was to be served out only at stated intervals during the day, or when thirst seemed to threaten the reason of any particular individual. In the full daylight, Elephant Island showed cold and severe to the north-northwest. The island was on the bearings that Worsley had laid down, and I congratulated him on the accuracy of his navigation under difficult circumstances. With two days dead reckoning while following a devious course through the pack-ice, and after drifting two nights at the mercy of the wind and waves. The stack on wheels came up, and McIlroy reported that Blackborough's feet were very badly frostbitten. This was unfortunate, but nothing could be done. Most of the people were frostbitten to some extent, and it was interesting to notice that the old-timers, Wild, Crean, Hurley, and I, were all right. Apparently we were acclimatized to ordinary Antarctic temperature, though we learned later that we were not immune. All day, with a gentle breeze on our port bow, we sailed and pulled through a clear sea. We would have given all the tea in China for a lump of ice to melt into water but no ice was within our reach. Three bergs were in sight, and we pulled towards them, hoping that a trail of brash would be floating on the sea to leeward. But they were hard and blue, devoid of any sign of cleavage, and the swell that surged around them as they rose and fell made it impossible for us to approach closely. The wind was gradually hauling ahead, and as the day wore on, the rays of the sun beat fiercely down from a cloudless sky, on pain-racked men. Progress was slow, but gradually Elephant Island came nearer. Always, while I attended to the other boats, signalling and ordering, Wild sat at the tiller of the James Caird. He seemed unmoved by fatigue, and unshaken by privation. About four o'clock in the afternoon, a stiff breeze came up ahead, and, blowing against the current, soon produced a choppy sea. During the next hour of hard pulling, we seemed to make no progress at all. 
for James Caird and the Dudley Docker had been towing the Stackham Wills in turn. But my boat now took the Stackham Wills in tow permanently, as the James Caird could carry more sail than the Dudley Docker in the freshening wind. We were making up for the south-east side of Elephant Island, the wind being between north-west and west. The boats, held as close to the wind as possible, moved slowly, and when darkness set in, our goal was still some miles away. A heavy sea was running. We soon lost sight of the Stancom Wills, astern of the James Caird at the length of the painter. But occasionally the white gleam of broken water revealed her presence. When the darkness was complete, I sat in the stern with my hand on the painter, so that I might know if the other boat broke away, and I kept that position during the night. The rope grew heavy with the ice as the unseen seas surged past us, and our little craft tossed to the motion of the waters. Just at dusk I had told the men of the Stancom Wills that if their boat broke away during the night, and they were unable to pull against the wind, they could run for the east side of Clarence Island and await our coming there. Even though we could not land on Elephant Island, it would not do to have the third boat adrift. It was a stern night. The men, except the watch, crouched and huddled in the bottom of the boat, getting what little warmth they could from the soaking sleeping-bags, and each other's bodies. Harder and harder blew the wind, and fiercer and fiercer grew the sea. The boat plunged heavily through the squalls, and came up to the wind, the sail shaking in the stiffest gusts. Every now and then, as the night wore on, the moon would shine down through a rift in the driving clouds, and in the momentary light I could see the ghostly faces of men, sitting up to trim the boat, as she heeled over to the wind. When the moon was hidden, its presence was revealed still by the light reflecting on the streaming glaciers of the island. The temperature had fallen very low, and it seemed that the general discomfort of our situation could scarcely have been increased. But the land looming ahead was a beacon of safety, and I think we were all buoyed up by the hope that the coming day would see the end of our immediate troubles. At least we would get firm land under our feet. While the painter of the stack and wheels tightened and dropped under my hand, my thoughts were busy with plans for the future. Towards midnight the wind shifted to the southwest, and this change enabled us to bear up closer to the island. A little later the Dudley Docker ran down to the James Caird, and Worsley shouted a suggestion that he should go ahead and search for a landing place. His boat had the heels of the James Caird with the Stancom wheels in tow. I told him he could try, but he must not lose sight of the James Caird. Just as he left me a heavy snow squall came down, and in the darkness the boats parted. I could see the Dudley Docker no more. This separation caused me some anxiety during the remaining hours of the night. A cross sea was running, and I could not feel sure that all was well with the missing boat. The waves could not be seen in the darkness, though the direction and force of the wind could be felt, and, under such conditions, in an open boat, disaster might overtake the most experienced navigator. I flashed our compass lamp on the sail, in the hopes that the signal would be visible on board the Dudley Docker, but could see no reply. 
we strained our eyes to windward in the darkness, in the hope of catching a return signal, and repeated our flashes at intervals. My anxiety, as a matter of fact, was groundless. I will quote Worsley's own account of what happened to the Dudley Ducker. About midnight we lost sight of the James Caird with the Stancomb wheels in tow, but not long after saw the light of the James Caird's compass lamp, which Sir Ernest was flashing on their sail as a guide to us. We answered by lighting our candle under the tent and letting the light shine through. At the same time we got the direction of the wind and how we were hauling from my little pocket compass, the boat's compass being smashed. With this candle our poor fellows lit their pipes, their only solace, as our raging thirst prevented us from eating anything. By this time we had got into a bad tide-rip, which, combined with the heavy, lumpy sea, made it almost impossible to keep the Dudley Docker from swamping. As it was, we shipped several bad seas over the stern, as well as a beam, and over the bows, although we were on the wind. Lees, who owned himself to be a rotten oarsman, made good here by strenuous bailing, in which he was well seconded by Cheetham. Greenstreet, a splendid fellow, relieved me at the tiller, and helped generally. He and Macklin were my right and left bowers, as stroke oars throughout. MacLeod and Cheetham were two good sailors and oars, the former a typical old deep-sea salt and growler, the latter a pirate to the fingertips. In the height of the gale that night, Cheetham was buying matches from me for bottles of champagne, one bottle per match. Too cheap, I should have charged him two bottles. The champagne is to be paid when he opens a pub in Hull, and I am able to call that way. We had now one hundred and eight hours of toil, tumbling, freezing, and soaking, with little or no sleep. I think Sir Ernest, Wilde, Greenstreet, and I could say that we had no sleep at all. Although it was sixteen months since we had been in a rough sea, only four men were actually seasick, but several others were off colour. The temperature was twenty degrees below freezing point. Fortunately, we were spared the bitterly low temperature of the previous night. Greenstreet's right foot got badly frostbitten, but Lees restored it by holding it in his sweater against his stomach. Other men had minor frostbites, due principally to the fact that their clothes were soaked through with salt water. We were close to the landing as the morning approached, but could see nothing of it through the snow and spindrift. My eyes began to fail me. Constant peering to windward, watching for seas to strike us, appeared to have given me a cold in the eyes. I could not see or judge distance properly, and found myself falling asleep momentarily at the tiller. At three a.m. Greenstreet relieved me there. I was so cramped for long hours, cold and wet in the constrained position one was forced to assume, on top of the gear and stores at the tiller, that the other men had to pull me in midships, and straighten me out like a jackknife, rubbing my thighs, groin and stomach. At daylight we found ourselves close alongside the land, but the weather was so thick that we could not see where to make for landing. Having taken the tiller again after an hour's rest under the shelter, save the mark, of the dripping tent, I ran the Dudley Docker off before the gale, following the coast around to the north. This course for the first hour was fairly risky, the heavy sea before which we were running threatening to swamp the boat. 
but by 8 a.m. we had obtained a sight leave from the land. There I was able to keep her very close in, along a glacial front, with the object of picking up lumps of fresh-water ice as we sailed through them. Our thirst was intense. We soon had some ice aboard, and for the next hour and a half we sucked and chewed fragments of ice with greedy relish. All this time we were coasting along beneath towering rocky cliffs, and sheer glacier faces, which offered not the slightest possibility of landing anywhere. At 9.30 a.m. we spied a narrow rocky beach at the base of some very high crags and cliff, and made for it. To our joy we sighted the James Caird and the Stancomb Wills sailing into the same haven just ahead of us. We were so delighted that we gave three cheers, which were not heard aboard the other boats owing to the roar of the surf. However, we soon joined them, and were able to exchange experiences on the beach. Our experiences on the James Caird had been similar, although we had not been able to keep up to windward as well as the Dudley Docker had done. This was fortunate as events proved, for the James Caird and Stancomb Wills went to leeward of the big bite the Dudley Docker entered, and from which she had to turn out with the sea astern. We thus avoided the risk of having the Stancomb Wills swamped in the following sea. The weather was very thick in the morning. Indeed, at 7 a.m., we were right under the cliffs, which plunged sheer into the sea, before we saw them. We followed the coast towards the north, and ever the precipitous cliffs and glacier faces presented themselves to our searching eyes. The sea broke heavily against these walls, and a landing would have been impossible under any conditions. We picked up pieces of ice and sucked them eagerly. At 9 a.m., at the northwest end of the island, we saw a narrow beach at the foot of the cliffs. Outside lay a fringe of rocks heavily beaten by the surf, but with a narrow channel showing as a break in the foaming water. I decided that we must face the hazards of this unattractive landing-place. Two days and nights without drink or hot food had played havoc with most of the men, and we could not assume that any safer haven lay within our reach. The Stancomb Wills were the lighter and handier boat, and I called her alongside with the intention of taking her through the gap first, and ascertaining the possibilities of a landing before the James Caird made the venture. I was just climbing into the Stancomb Wills when I saw the Dudley Docker coming up astern under sail. The sight took a great load off my mind. Rowing carefully and avoiding the blind rollers, which showed where sunken rocks lay, we brought the Stancomb Wills towards the opening in the reef. Then, with a few strong strokes, we shot through on the top of a swell, and ran the boat onto a stony beach. The next swell lifted her a little farther. This was the first landing ever made on Elephant Island, and a thought came to me that the honour should belong to the youngest member of the expedition. So I told Blackborough to jump over. He seemed to be in a state almost of coma, and in order to avoid delay I helped him, perhaps a little roughly, over the side of the boat. He promptly sat down in the surf and did not move. Then I suddenly realised what I had forgotten, that both his feet were frost-bitten badly. Some of us jumped over and pulled him into a dry place. It was a rather rough experience for Blackborough, but, anyhow, he is now able to say that he was the first man to sit on Elephant Island. 
possibly at the time he would have been willing to forgo any distinction of the kind. We landed the cook with his blubber stove, a supply of fuel, and some packets of dried milk, and also several of the men. Then the rest of us pulled out again to pilot the other boats through the channel. The James Caird was too heavy to be beached directly, so, after landing most of the men from the Dudley Docker and the Stancomb Wills, I superintended the transshipment of the James Caird's gear outside the reef. Then we all made the passage, and within a few minutes the three boats were aground. A curious spectacle met my eyes when I landed the second time. Some of the men were reeling about the beach, as if they had found an unlimited supply of alcohol liqueur on the desolate shore. They were laughing uproariously, picking up stones, and letting handfuls of pebbles trickle between their fingers, like misers gloating over hoarded gold, which caused cracked lips to bleed afresh, and the gleeful examinations at the sight of two life-seals on the beach made me think for a moment of that glittering hour of childhood, when the door is open at last, and the Christmas-tree in all its wonder bursts upon the vision. I remember that wild who always rose superior to fortune, bad and good, came ashore as I was looking at the men, and stood beside me as easy and unconcerned as if he had stepped out of his car for a stroll in the park. Soon half a dozen of us had the stores ashore. Our strength was nearly exhausted, and it was heavy work carrying our goods over the rough pebbles and rocks to the foot of the cliff. But we dare not leave anything within reach of the tide, we had to wade knee-deep in the icy water in order to lift the gear from the boats. When the work was done, we pulled the three boats a little higher on the beach, and turned gratefully to enjoy the hot drink the cook had prepared. Those of us who were comparatively fit had to wait until the weaker members of the party had been supplied. But every man had his pannikin of hot milk in the end, and never did anything taste better. Seal steak and blubber followed, for the seals that had been careless enough to await our arrival on the beach had already given up their lives. There was no rest for the cook. The blubber stove flared and spluttered fiercely as he cooked, not one meal, but many meals, which merged into a day-long bout of eating. We drank water and ate seal meat, until every man had reached the limit of his capacity. The tents were pitched with oars for supports, and by 3 p.m. our camp was in order. The original framework of the tents had been cast adrift on one of the floes in order to save weight. Most of the men turned in early for a safe and glorious sleep, to be broken only by the call to take a turn on watch. The chief duty of the watchman was to keep the blubber stove alight, and each man on duty appeared to find it necessary to cook himself a meal during his watch, and a supper before he turned in again. Wild, Worsley, and Hurley accompanied me on an inspection of our beach before getting into the tents. I almost wished then that I had postponed the examination until after sleep, but the sense of caution that the uncertainties of polar travel implement in one's mind had made me uneasy. The outlook we found to be anything but cheering. Obvious signs showed that at spring tides the little beach would be covered by the water right up to the foot of the cliffs. In a strong northeasterly gale, such as we might expect to experience at any time, the waves would pound over the scant barrier of the reef, 
and break against the sheer sides of the rocky wall behind us. Well-marked terraces showed the effect of other gales, and right at the back of the beach was a small bit of wreckage, not more than three feet long, rounded by the constant chafing it had endured. Obviously we must find some better resting place. I decided not to share with the men the knowledge of the uncertainties of our situation, until they had enjoyed the full sweetness of rest, untroubled by the thought that at any minute they might be called to face peril again. The threat of the sea had been our portion during many, many days, and a respite meant much to weary bodies and jaded minds. The accompanying plan will indicate our exact position more clearly than I can describe it. The cliffs at the back of the beach were inaccessible except at two points, where there were steep snow slopes. We were not worried now about food, for, apart from our own rations, there were seals on the beach, and we could see others in the water outside the reef. Every now and then one of the animals would rise in the shallows and crawl up on the beach, which evidently was a recognised place of resort for its kind. A small rocky island which protected us to some extent from the north-westerly wind carried a ring-penguin rookery. But in the meantime they were well within our reach. These attractions, however, were overridden by the fact that the beach was open to the attack of wind and sea from the northeast and east. Easterly gales are more prevalent than western in that area of the Antarctic during the winter. Before turning in that night, I studied the whole position and weighed every chance of getting the boats and our stores into a place of safety out of reach of the winter. We ourselves might have clambered a little way up the snow slopes, but we could not have taken the boats with us. The interior of the island was quite inaccessible. We climbed up one of the slopes, and found ourselves stopped soon by overhanging cliffs. The rocks behind the camp were much weathered, and we noticed the sharp, unworn boulders that had fallen from above. Clearly there was a danger from overhead, if we camped at the back of the beach. We must move on. With that thought in mind, I reached my tent and fell asleep on the rubbly ground, which gave a comforting sense of stability. The fairy princess, who would not rest on her seven downy mattresses, because a pea lay underneath the pile, might not have understood the pleasure we all derived from the irregularities of the stones, which could not possibly break beneath us or drift away. The very searching lumps were sweet reminders of our safety. End of chapter 8, part 3